Good morning, everybody. Glad you're with us this morning. Continuing our study today in 1 Corinthians, we have arrived at chapter 11. And somewhere along the way, the word submit has lost its power. Subverted. It's been subverted. I like that word. Submit has been subverted. Because people have robbed this word of its original intent and its power, especially as it appears in the New Testament of our Bible. We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at the word submit, and I want you to think about a couple of things. Think about how we submit all the time. All of us do. You do. I do. We all do. When you submit to exercise, you get the blessing of vitality and better health. When you submit to Sabbath rest, you bring the blessing of renewed mind, body, and spirit. When you submit to study, you bring about the blessing of better grades and a feeling of accomplishment. When you submit to a practice, regular concerted practice of a musical instrument, it brings about the blessing of excellence and the enjoyment of doing something you enjoy. When you submit to driving laws, you bring about the blessing of safety, relative safety, and lower insurance rates too. When you submit to consistent physical hygiene, you bring about the blessing of more friends. When you submit to frugal spending and consistent saving, you bring about the blessing of financial strength. When you submit to God's created order, you bring about the blessing of God's kingdom forever. So in all these areas, we can see that blessings come out of submission. So there's a lot of power in submission, and we're going to look at three areas today related to the Apostle Paul and his teaching. First of all, zeroing in on the first 16 verses of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, but also we're going to broaden that context a little bit more and look at some of his teaching about submission found in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to see that we're starting with a broad context because that's how we do. We broaden to look at the whole forest, and then we start tightening up our view, getting closer and closer to look at a few of the trees, and then at one particular tree. That's kind of how we're approaching this so that we can come up with the right interpretation. That's just a a good way of looking at scripture if you're looking for good interpretation. Then after we found out what it means to the people during the time that Paul wrote this stuff to, then we can start to apply the principles that are still here for us today in our culture. That's where we're headed today. Today's passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. And I'll be reading it today from the New Living Translation. So allow this to pour over you, and I'll get through this first 16 verses, and we'll start unpacking those three areas that we talked about. He begins, And you should imitate me, just as I imitate Christ. I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts, and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. We're going to look at what that has to do. That may sound a little strange in our culture, so hang in there. We're going to be looking at that. 
Verse 7, a man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for a man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Unusual passage, is it not, from our cultural perspective? Let's pray for God to illuminate this for us and help us understand it more clearly so we can understand the principles that apply to us today. Heavenly Father, it's a challenge sometimes to look into your word because certain things seem very foreign or odd to us. And yet we know that everything in your word is inspired by you and is profitable for our instruction. And I know that you have something individually for each one of us through your Holy Spirit. So I'm praying today that you would speak to us as we look into what this means to us. First, getting a good handle on what it meant back in Corinth in the first century AD, and then extrapolating that to the principles that we can apply to our own lives. And I pray it will be beneficial and empowering, especially empowering to women, because I think that there are many misunderstandings about this passage that we want to clear up, and I pray that you'll help us do that today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First verse, sounds strange right off the bat. If you were to start right where we started without having read the previous chapter, because Paul starts right out and says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And you think, wow, uh, being a little arrogant today, are we, Paul? <laughs> no, not at all, because of course we need to look at context and we need to see the broader context as we said we would look at. He's been talking about unity in a divided church, a church that was dysfunctional in many ways, because there were sides being taken over different issues. There was sin creeping into the church that hadn't been dealt with by the elders as they should have dealt with it. They were trying to build little um, bastions of agreement around their own teams. And so it was becoming team politics at work within the church itself, not a healthy situation. So Paul's talking a lot about unity. He's saying that this unity can be built around the law of Christ we looked at a couple of others of his letters last week to show how this law of Christ is permeating a lot of Paul's teaching because he has switched from following the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and he's now following the law of Christ because he said that when Christ came and did what he did for us on the cross, and as he was buried and then resurrected, he actually fulfilled all of the things that were pointing to him in the Old Testament. So now what we have is a unity that's built around 
the law of Christ and a summation of the law of Christ is that we're supposed to love others the way Christ has loved us. It's exemplified by Christ's humility. So anything that's starting to cause division in the church that's caused by pride and a lack of humility, Paul is starting to address those things. So that's the broad context as we start to lead up to what he just said when he begins chapter 11. Then we can see a much more recent context in the very last verse of the very last chapter when he says, and I don't just do what's best for me, I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. That's the context. So he's saying, I'm trying to become all things to all people. I'm trying to find a bridge, a relational bridge built with others, regardless of which side they may come from, so that I'll have an opportunity to present the gospel to them so that they can come on board where we are and become Christ followers as well. So he's saying that takes humility. It takes dying to self. It takes laying yourself down and not doing everything just for your own benefit. So that's the immediate context. And because chapters and verse numbers were added much later so that people like you and me could find what we're studying more easily, it seems strange that they would break that chapter when they did. But what we see in the very beginning of chapter 11 is really just a continuation of this because he says, and so now you should imitate me the way I'm, I'm imitating Christ when it comes to humility. Another way to say that is the only reason you should ever imitate me and I would say we can also extrapolate that even into today's leaders. Any time you should imitate a Christian leader, even today, is only because they're imitating Christ's humility and selfless attitude. If they're not imitating Christ that way, don't follow them. Paul's theological context. There's another layer of this context that we're looking at, which I think is vital to understanding what's going on with this strange passage about head coverings and submission to authority and length of hair and wearing of veils. It's all very strange to us. First, he starts, starts to present a God-given order. He's saying that Christ is the head of the church, and he has mentioned in other places in his writings that the church is the body of Christ. So you, you need a head to have a body. I mean, that kind of goes without saying. Christ is the head of that church. Rather vital, rather important, but they're connected, and they're all vital. God, the Son, Jesus, when he was on earth, is subordinate in role, but not in personhood. We're going to see this fleshed out a little bit, too, as we continue to look at more and more of Paul's writings in the continuation of this uh, 1 Corinthians letter. I'm just putting it out there for you in summary form, but I think that's very true, and we'll see that coming uh, to play later on. God the Son is subordinate, not in personhood, but in role. And he willingly submits to the role that he played, including willingly submitting to being nailed to a cross. Therefore, Paul is making this comparison. Therefore, a wife is no less valuable in her personhood than a husband. I think that's important. We should ask the question, is Christ any less valuable? Well, of course not. He's just as valuable as one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. So not less in value, just a different role. Here's the key verse, I think, in this passage, this first 16 verses of chapter 11 that unlocks the meaning to all the other verses. It's verse three, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is trying to show us that there's an example in the Trinity itself 
for a wonderful submission in role. The father relates to a son in a way that's extremely loving. The father wants nothing but the best for that son. And yet the son is willing to submit to the father because he knows that the father loves him that much. So there's a great example in the Trinity already that Paul is trying to start putting forward theologically as he begins this discussion about the roles of man and wife in a marriage relationship. He's, he's saying that the husband should relate to his wife in much the same way. And after we've unpacked some of this, we're going to look at Ephesians to see how he fleshes that out as well. There's the role versus personhood. I've already mentioned it, but we need to ask this. Is God the Son any less important than God the Father? Clearly a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. They are equal, co-equal. Is a wife any less important than the husband? Quickly, that should follow. Absolutely not. Equally important. Therefore, this passage does not teach, as some erring preachers and teachers have taught, this passage does not teach that women are somehow inferior to men. That's not the intent. And to take away anything like that is to miss the analogy that Paul is giving us in the Trinity. It's important for us to note that. Now, let's look at the culture as another layer of context. We had the broad context of trying to build in unity because there were dif differences of opinion and team politics going on. Now we have this Corinthian culture as a context, and this really comes into play because of some very specifics related to head covering back in that specific culture. A literal head covering symbolized submission in that culture. For a woman to wear a head covering meant I am showing the world that I submit to my husband. It would almost be, this is a, not a, a really close analogy, but it's a slight analogy, that today for a woman to wear a wedding ring is to say, I submit to my husband in marriage. And of course, we're talking about mutual submission today. So I can say, yes, and I wear my wedding ring to show people that I'm married to my wife and that I have committed myself to her as well. The literal head covering was an outward symbol of something that was inwardly known because of marriage in that culture. Paul used head covering as an example because it was culturally relevant to him, and it became a starting point for his discussion. This is just like he does in so many other times uh, when he was going to the place where he was talking about their unknown God. They had a statue erected to an unknown God. He starts somewhere to build a bridge relationally with them so that he can go deeper with his thoughts and eventually point it to the gospel. He always manages to point it to Christ, which is great. And he starts here as well. Now, he's starting with something that to that culture would have been an easy starting place. Women, you should submit to your husbands in marriage. And they would be thinking to us, we might think, what? What are you talking about? Because we have this independent culture, this different autonomous mindset that they might have had back then. For them, they would have gone, well, duh. Tell me something we don't know. That was so ingrained in their culture that for them to hear Paul start at this level by saying, women, submit to your husbands. They'd be thinking, okay, well, where are you going with this? You're not telling us anything that we don't already know. He mentioned something that to them would have been known as well. There's the both the veil or the head covering itself, and then there's hair length, which he alluded to, as you heard, as I read that passage. For a woman to take off the veil or to cut her hair symbolized something that in their culture meant more than it would mean to us today. Because of all of Paul's other context, which we talked about, the divisions in the disunity that was being brought into the church, 
and knowing about the Corinthian culture and the Greek culture, knowing that they had many pagan worship practices, some of which he's already alluded to, I think what he's really talking about here is he's saying, we don't want women to bring in pagan influences into the Christian church because there were pagan worship practices and there were temple prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite. And men would pay money for the things that they would do as a part of their worship practices. And a great deal of that money would go to the temple itself. Paul is saying, ladies, we don't want you looking like something that's coming right out of that pagan worship practice. We're separate. We're not a pagan worship uh, entity or organization. We're a church. We're the body of Christ itself, and we don't want to dishonor the body of Christ. You can see that culturally it meant a whole lot more to them than those things might mean to us today. He was concerned about cultural creep, not a cultural creep, but cultural creep, the creeping in to the church of culture that involved pagan worship. Outward evidence of heart attitude. Now we can see in a lot of Paul's other writings that Paul was constantly teaching that it was really the attitude of the heart that matters more than outward observances. And I'm sure that given enough time, he's going to unpack some of that for us. It seems like he's really camping out a lot about physical outward manifestations of head covering. That's because in their culture, it mattered. But I'm sure that we can also extrapolate that by looking at the heart attitude that he's saying here. And he's saying what happens in our hearts is really more important than what happens on the outside, even though in his culture, that outward expression was extremely vital to them. He was warning against Christian women bringing non-Christian practices into the church. Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That was another one that when we first read that, we think, okay, Paul, you've gone from weird to weirder. What do you mean by because of the angels in some translations, because the angels are watching? What in the world does that have to do with anything? I think I've gotten to what I believe may be a decent interpretation, but I confess to you, I don't know that I have a complete handle about this meaning. What I do know is I read some really strange commentaries and there are some weird ideas about what people have said they think this means. I've ruled much of that out because I think some of that is really a stretch for what they were meaning. Here's a sentence that I tried to compile around my study and what I think verse 10 is talking about. Angels who are also submitting to God's order. They submit to him now as they submitted to him all the way after creation itself. They affirm God's order and they heighten our worship experience. We know that when we're gathered for worship, the angels are already worshiping. And so we're being joined in worship by angels who are also participating and watching this worship take place. They're looking on in worship. So when we're worshiping with the same humility and attitude, that same submission to God, both we and the angels who have been God's messengers are participating in the same Christ-exalting experience. And so I think Paul is trying to show us that something transcendent is happening when there is submission taking place. The same kind of submission that takes place in the angels can take place in us. And when we're resonating in the same wave, wavelength and we're both submitting that way, it's a pretty astounding experience, especially when we become aware that they are watching what we're doing as well. 
some of the other, I'm not going to even tell you what some of the weird translations are, or interpretations were. They were just way out there. And I think that they almost reflected more of a Greek pagan idea than what was just put forward in this sentence. We know that there were some angels that did not submit. They were trying to usurp God's authority. And so they fell and they became uh, agents of division and evil. And so in context with Paul talking about division and unity, I kind of think that he's giving an illustration from the angel world to show that the same thing is true for them that is true for us. There is power in submission. Again, I think that sometimes uh, the word submission or submit has been subverted over time, but there really is power in submission. And we tend to forget that there's a lot of power in that. That's why I read to you all those different illustrations about when we submit to this, the blessing is this. When we submit here, this is the blessing. There's a lot of blessing that comes out of submission in a lot of areas of our lives. And it's true, especially here in these relationships. He loves to use, Paul loves to use different words with two different meanings. And he does so here. That's something that we don't pick up in English. The exousia, the crown, is something that could also be related to the hair, the covering, which is a woman's crown of glory, which is a sign of power. It's a symbol that she's the queen of that household. I remember, this just popped into my head. Um, my sister, who's almost five years older than I am, was very young. I don't think I was born yet. She was about four years old. And this is a family story that got propagated over and over again. She really wanted something. I think she wanted some candy. And she was asking her grandmother, her mother's mom, for some of this candy. And her own mother, our mom, had said, well, honey, I, I don't know that you really need the candy right then. And Kathy, basically, my sister Kathy says, well, I'm asking the queen of her house. She knew that grandmother had power because she was the queen of her house and the queen has power. And of course, grandmothers have power to give those grandkids what they asked for. And she got the candy. <laughs> so when we wear, uh, when, when women wear the crown of glory, Paul is saying, there's power associated with that and they embrace their femininity. And Paul saw that as a powerful thing, as a good thing. And that's something that I think we tend to miss in our society today. Because although I, I want to encourage the right kinds of power among women, because there are some powerful women, we can see many of them in the Bible. Uh, our ladies had a really fun game night, and I was privy to listen in for a couple of minutes as I was walking through, and I heard some of the women being talked about when they did a trivia uh, challenge. And there's some powerful women in God's word. But I think some of the power comes from embracing their femininity. And when you do that in the balanced way, according to God's order, women really have been given a tremendous amount of power as they understand that God's made us differently, men and women, and we each have different roles to play. And when we're both embracing those roles, women don't have to try to be something they're not in order to be powerful. When both roles in marriage are fulfilled, God's glory is revealed through his order and a couple flourishes in their relationship. If you look at a power couple, and I've seen several in my lifetime, and I, I know that I probably sound like a broken record, and forgive me for this if I do, but I look at my own parents as a power couple. And they're not the power couple in the definition of the way the world would define a power couple. They were powerful because they lived according to God's established order, 
And they both brought out the best in each other in such tremendous ways. And so they were productive for the kingdom's sake. Look at verse 11. Among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. Now, I don't know if you understand how radical a concept that was. Once Paul starts with this, duh, women, you're supposed to submit to your husbands, and they'd be thinking, okay. Then he gets to this point, and they're starting to go, wait a minute. What are you saying? Women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. Men literally legally had ownership over their children and their wives. So if a wife displeased the husband, they might think, oh, I might be sold or traded or put on a shelf and treated as though I'm divorced, but without a writ of divorce, which means I have no ability to make money, which means I'm put on the street, which means I might have to become a prostitute just in order to make money. It was a big deal back then. So for Paul to get to this statement in verse 11, it was a big deal in that culture. He's talking about interdependency, that we need each other, men and women. God designed marriage to be a relationship that becomes a synergistic catalyst for society to flourish through the strength of unity and the power of submission. I designed that sentence around trying to capture what all this teaching is. This is kind of the crux of the matter right here in one sentence. If you want the sermon in one sentence, that's it. God designed marriage to be a relationship that becomes a synergistic catalyst, which means that the sum of each individual parts is so much greater than those individual parts. And it's a catalyst, which means that it influences all of society. When there are power couples living according to God's designed order, that in itself becomes a catalyst for others to benefit from their power because it's God's power being unleashed through their relationship why is it so powerful? Because it's an example of what God in the Trinity has done for us as well. And so we're reflecting his glory to others, and God's love flows so much more freely through couples who get it and are living according to God's created order. It's power and submission. Now, let's uh, run away from 1 Corinthians for a minute, but let's just slide 1 Corinthians over to one side and bring in Ephesians and put them side by side for a minute, because Paul is talking about the same concept, but to a different group of believers, and this is a kind of an aha light bulb moment as we start to look again even deeper at the word submit in his culture. Interesting how the word submit in the very earliest manuscripts, because there were lots of manuscripts, in that part of the world floating around. And the very earliest ones that we've been able to find in the early Greek, because of their syntax, didn't have the word submit in verse 22. Here's what it says. The earliest Greek manuscripts in Ephesians 5.22 says, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sounds strange in English, doesn't it? So what's missing? An action word. To do what as unto the Lord? What's missing? The verb. Why is there no verb? Because in the Greek language back then, if you had two related concepts and you put the verb in the first concept, you would infer that verb without having to mention it the second time around. So you put the second layer and you would go back up to the first layer to find out what that verb meant. So your question right now would be, so what came before it? What is the meaning, the context for that verb? I'm so glad you asked because you're about to find out. The verb took on the meaning from what came before it. What came before it? Submit, bum, bum, 
bump to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh my goodness. That I'm quoting Mark Elwell when he likes to, I love it when he goes, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Every time he says that, you know that he's talking about something that in that culture was a big deal. Submit to one another. Why is that a big deal? Because of what I just described to you about men literally owning their families like property. This is a big deal. For Paul to say there's mutual submission was radical. There were probably people in the crowd as he said these words, if he were going to be reading them out loud, I think this is a letter, so that might not have happened, but if Paul were to speak these words out loud, I guarantee you there would have been an uproar coming from some people saying, ah, what are you talking about? This was a big deal. Why was it such a big deal? Because of their cultural context. Mutual submission means that both parties, the wife and the husband, are willingly offering grace freely to one another out of the law of Christ. I'm going to love you the way Christ has loved me, which means there are no expectations in grace. Grace has no expectations of you. I'm going to love you simply because you are God's cherished gift to me. So without any expectation of anything in return, I'm giving myself to you. That was according to the law of Christ. That's mutual submission. That's the model that Paul's talking about in Ephesians, in Ephesians, which also plays into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There are different roles, but the same value. Even though the wife may say, okay, I trust you for the final word in this decision. Thank you for seeking my input. I've given you my input, but whatever decision you come up with, you're the head of our household. I trust you. I trust that you're seeking God's will in this matter. And so you just make the decision and I'll follow. That's submission. But you see the other side of that coin? Do you see the husband that's willing to seek his wife's input because he's learned to trust it? To seek how this is going to affect her before he makes that decision because he loves her so much that he doesn't want to make unilateral decisions and just force her to say, hey, that's my decision. Live with it. Tough beans. Tough beans? Is that a human phrase? It is now. Some, some beans would be tough if you cooked them wrong. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives, Paul says, just as Christ loved the church. And then just to be crystal clear, and gave himself up for her. Wow. Big deal. This is the kind of stuff that when we look to see what Paul is actually doing, you can't place upon Paul the misnomer of saying that he is misogynistic. You can't say, oh man, he was so sexist. This was radical and it was empowering to women because of what Paul is saying based on the law of Christ. Yes, there are different roles. Yes, women tend naturally to be more nurturing than men. We need the protector and we need the nurturer. We need that person who's going to fight for his wife if necessary and make sure that she knows that she's protected because she's cherished by him. And yet we need those wonderful, sweet, forgiving wives who can put up with those crying babies at 2 a.m. and rock them back to sleep when the husband is just about out of his mind because he doesn't know how to do that nurturing stuff as well. We need these roles and we both need to submit into these roles, but we need to do so lovingly toward one another, offering grace freely according to the law of Christ. Here's God's intention. 
as seen not just through Paul and his teaching in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, but also through Jesus Christ and his love for the body of Christ itself, because Christ is the head. The husband lays down his life for his wife. The wife wants to submit willingly to the husband's final word and decision-making. Why is that? Because the husband desires his wife's input. Both love and respect are shared mutually. The husband who needs respect gets it from his wife because he's earned it, because he has given himself freely without any expectation. And yet, because there's no expectation, she wants to willing. It's just such a crazy, wonderful thing. And it seems counterintuitive. It's like, if I give myself to her so freely without any expectation, what if I don't get it back? Here's the thing. She's going to want to give it back to you more, husbands, if you lay your life down for her that way. It's because you don't expect it that you're going to get it. Counterintuitive? Yes. True? Yes. I really think that's true. Here's the head covering thing. Back then, it was literal. It was physical. Clearly, in our culture, head covering is just an accoutrement of our apparel. It's just something that we do. It's just something that we wear. So what if we don't wear literal head coverings, ladies? What's the alternative? This is just one way of looking at it. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. If you want to see that a woman is submitting to a man and that the man is submitting to Christ and laying his life down for the wife, look at the countenance of the wife. Look at the face of a wife and you can tell pretty quickly if there is mutual submission taking place like Paul has described for us. If she's miserable, chances are that husband is not laying his life down for the wife or that she has chafed at submission and she's trying to become too autonomous and she's unwilling to submit in any way. There's some imbalance going on there that's not biblical. That's the head covering. It's the countenance. You can look at the cheerful countenance of a woman and say, they got something going on there. They're a power couple, but powerful in the way of submission, the way I've described. This also extrapolates its way out into other relationships. This is where context matters because Paul in other areas has told us that we need to submit where submission is appropriate. That can happen with employees to employers. It can happen with pupils to teachers. I've seen that happen in all of these areas where I chafed at submission, but when I finally did, I realized that they were actually for me. That happened in a uh, music memorization class one time. It was a music history class and we had to memorize different segments of specific memory um, examples. And so they would drop the needle and you'd have to remember, okay, what song is this from? Is it a symphony? If so, which symphony, who wrote it? Which movement is it? What key is it in? That was what we were doing in that particular class. And I was chafing at some of the requirements for that class. And I, I really didn't think that that teacher was for my good. And I, I had a chat with him about something. And the more I talked with him, the more I realized he's trying to set me up for success. And so I started learning in my spirit, my attitude to submit to his requirements. And I got more out of his class than I did so many of my other classes that time because I understood that my submission was a change in my attitude. And I realized he's for me, he's not against me. And I grew to love that class. And I came away with so much appreciation 
that I didn't have prior to taking that class. Pupil to teacher, it certainly works. Employee to employer. And then here's one, and this is where it takes it right into today, 2020, the week before elections. Citizens respecting governmental authority. Uh-oh, here we go, we've gotten into politics. But trust me on this one, I'm gonna tell you something biblical that just happens to apply to what we're going through today. I'm not gonna tell you who to vote for. I'm not gonna tell you which sign you should put in your front yard. I'm not gonna tell you what you should believe politically. I'm telling you what the scripture tells us we ought to take into consideration as we're moving through this contentious time in our society. Let me mention an article that I read two weeks ago by a guy who travels all over the world and he deals with real Christian persecution. I mean, real persecution. And some of the stuff that he said in his article really caused me to think more critically about my reaction to certain things that are going on around me right now in this contentious time in America. And it talked to me about how submissive am I to God's teaching in the Bible? Am I willing to stop myself and take a little time out and examine what am I believing to be true? Is it true biblically or not? Am I allowing other things to creep in that I'm believing that's causing me to overreact to certain things? Because I'm telling you, I've struggled with this kind of stuff. I think all of us may have in this last few weeks. What this guy said was he has seen that the kind of persecution he has witnessed firsthand is aimed at eradicating Christianity. And so there is violence, there's malicious intent, there is damage to buildings. He's seen church buildings and mosques and synagogues literally damaged or destroyed completely. He has seen people arrested. He's seen people killed for their faith. He said, that's persecution. So this is something that I had to really think about in his article. He said, as we're thinking about a pandemic and what was an unknown virus just less than a year ago, it's a novel virus. We didn't know if it was gonna become like the Spanish flu. We didn't know if it was gonna be millions of people dying. We're still learning, but we're, we're learning more and more, but we're still learning. He said, for some government entities to err on the side of caution and to require that certain businesses, including organizations like churches, would follow certain guidelines, he said, I would be reluctant to call that persecution. And I know that that's chafing some of you right now. Take a deep breath with me. Breathe in, breathe out. Think about what Paul has talked about. Think about some of the requirements that we're supposed to submit to government authorities if they are there to bring about justice and peace and well-being for our folks. Yes, I'm sure that there are some evil intent. There is some evil intent in the lives of some people out there who would love to eradicate Christianity. I know that that's probably true in some cases. And yet, I've also heard from some Christian brothers that I really appreciate and whom I happen to know personally who they're looking at the same data, and yet they have some of the same cautions for us, that means I'm gonna take their words seriously because I know they want my best interest. So if I hear from somebody like a Francis Collins, whom I watched get baptized, I got to be there for his baptism years ago because he was a member of our church. And I know his heart, and I know that he's trying to follow God's leadership in his life, looking for wisdom as he helps people navigate this difficult season. So when he says, 
I think it would be wise for us to take some of these precautions seriously because we may be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with us yet. I would take his word seriously because I know it's not evil intent. I know he's not malicious. He's trying to protect life rather than to take life. And for people who want to take life, yeah, that's persecution. For people to want to get rid of worship altogether, that's persecution. Some of these things are very temporary. People are saying, no, we don't want you to stop worshiping. We just want you to worship in a way that we hope is safe because we're trying to alleviate suffering and save lives. That's not necessarily persecution, according to this guy in his article. That caused me to process in a way that said, ooh, God forgive me when I have been quick in my knee-jerk reaction to believe something that may not be true, to believe that there is this huge sweeping wave of negativity that wants to wipe out all Christian worship. It may not be the case. Yes, there are those that want that to happen. Is it a sweeping wave? I don't know. I have to be careful. I have to be cautious not to exaggerate what may be truth. And I need to pray and say, God, are there other believers out there who believe the same things I do? And that, yes, we want to be cautious because we can see that people are still being harmed, some of them seriously, some of them with lasting physical effects, some of them still dying. So can we be cautious and yet know that we're not doing that because we're trying to persecute people, but we're trying to bless people? So that's what I'm trying to put out to you to say that I think this there's power in submission principle can still hold true today, not just in marriages, but as we submit to government authorities as well. That's something for me that has caused me to really spend some time in prayer, take some long walks, hash it out, talk out loud to God. Some people looking at me walking down the street talking out loud. Hopefully they'll think I just have Bluetooth in my ears, <laughs> but I've had to talk a lot of this out. Malicious intent, extremely violent people. The goal is permanent suppression. If those three don't exist, we need to be very careful about calling some of the things that are being done right now. Uh, persecution. Now, let me give you one final thing. Lesson from a puppy. I've talked about so many things that are so difficult for us. We need to look at this cute puppy for a moment. Isn't she sweet? Yeah. <laughs> well, in this picture, especially, she's so sweet. I took that just yesterday. I was puppy sitting because Joy and Callie needed to go run a couple of errands. And I volunteered for that role because I love Poppy. And she was in this wonderful sunlight coming through the window. And she looked at me with those loving eyes. And I thought, oh, how can you not love a dog like that? And yet, because she's in that age, puppy-wise, that's similar to a toddler. You who are parents know what toddlers can be like at times. There are times when this particular cute puppy fights sleep. Usually it's right between about 7 and 7.30 or 8 o'clock p.m. That's her fighting sleep time. And sometimes she can go into what Callie has termed the rabid weasel mode. She goes full on honey badger. And she just tries to get all this energy out. And she's trying to bite. And with her little needle teeth, she wants to rip the flesh off of your hand. And she goes crazy for a minute. And she does that because she's expending what little energy she's got left because she doesn't want to go to sleep. And finally, if you hold her in such a way that she gets content and you walk around the room a little bit, uh, she just relaxes and she stops fighting what is the inevitable. And she learns that what she's submitting to is actually good for her. And it's peaceful. And it's peaceful for other people around her as well. 
And this is what happens when she finally gives into it. Oh, I realize that I see myself spiritually at times in Poppy. And I see that sometimes I fight against things so difficult that I make it more difficult than it really is because I'm fighting against something that I can't control. And haven't we all felt out of control because of this pandemic and because of a crazy contentious political season? And I find that if I'm trying to wrestle things out in my own strength, I really just make myself miserable. And what I need to do is to relax into God's grace and to understand that when I submit to his authority, when I submit to others that are placed in authority over me, instead of trying to fight, fight, fight all the time, I can relax and trust that God is still sovereign. Paul knew that. That's why he gave us all this good teaching in his letters, which we have in the New Testament, including submitting to government authorities. Wives, it means submitting to your husband as the head of your household. Have you been chafing against that to the point that you're just unwilling to go with his decision on something? Maybe it's time to submit. Husbands, have you not been submitting to Christ in a way that you would lay your life willingly down for your wife? Maybe it's time that you submit willingly. Have we been making things difficult for ourselves and for the rest of our family members who have to listen to us talk all the time about politics? Maybe we need to submit and recognize that if we're trying to fix something that's out of our control, maybe we ought to stop trying to fix it. Maybe we can trust that God can fix things that are out of our control because it's a God-sized problem. And what we do next reveals what we truly believe about him, not what we believe about ourselves. And I truly believe that God is sovereign and he's still in charge. He's still in charge of married couples, He's still in charge of his created order. He's still in charge of this country. May not feel like it, but he is. So I would like for all of us, myself included, to take a deep breath, breathe in the Holy Spirit, breathe in the truth from God's word, and to submit to God's created order, knowing that God's in charge, he's still in control, and we can trust him to get us through this next week. Beyond this next week, regardless of which side you might find yourself on, some of us are going to have winners. Some of us are going to feel like we're losers. We're still the church. It's going to be up to us to live out the law of Christ, to be benevolent toward other people, regardless of what side they happen to be on. We need to make sure that we're living out God's grace to others without any expectation in return so that if there are people who are suffering because of the consequences of an election, we need to be there to alleviate their suffering. If there are people who are in need, we need to help meet those needs. Whatever we need to do to be a church that really reveals Christ, now is going to be the time for us to rise up as a church and be the church of God, to be the church that reflects the image of Jesus Christ so clearly that people can say, but didn't you vote for that other person? I said, yeah, but that doesn't matter. We're the church. We're going to be Christ-like to other people, regardless of where our political motives might lie. Can we do that together? I say yes, because the church has been doing that for 2,000 years. And that's why we've got this wonderful teaching that started all the way back with a contentious 
time in history in Corinth, and it's still applicable today in America in 2020. Yes, we can be that church. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Father, this is just an extraordinary time. It's not like anything I've ever lived through, quite frankly. So this, of all times, is the time when I pray you will really speak to your church and that we will do all we can to reflect Jesus Christ to those around us so that we can be that synergistic catalyst for the flourishing of society, starting with the nucleus of families, with a husband and a wife and their mutual submission in Christ as unto Christ, and working its way into our workplaces and into our schools and into our church relationships and into our communities so that we become a catalyst for society so that people can look to us and say, wow, I know this has been a contentious time, but look at these people and how they love one another and how they serve others. Oh, I pray that we will be that kind of people, Father, so that Jesus Christ becomes clearer and more unmistakable in our world today because he's the only answer. May he be exalted. I pray in Jesus' name.